This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hi, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so incredibly honored to have Dr. Lynn Martin from Seattle Children's. Welcome, Dr. Martin. Good afternoon. Um, Dr. Martin, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Seattle's Children? And what, what is your role there? My role is as a pediatric anesthesiologist, I have two leadership responsibilities. One is I'm the medical director for our ambulatory, ambulatory surgery center in Bellevue. And I'm also the medical director for continuous improvement and innovation for the entire health system. Wow, that that's a that's a big a big job. And and once again, Lynn, thank you very much for for joining us. I know I know that you're very busy. When we have physicians on the show who are actually practicing and those who who aren't actively practicing, which you are, uh, we'd like to know how how did you get into to quality improvement? None of us went to med school with thinking that that we would eventually end up working in in quality improvement, and we'd just like to hear your story. It's it's a, an amazing story, actually. It could be a real long version, but I'll give you try and give you the short version. I was selected to become the leader of the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine. I say prematurely. I was didn't feel I was ready for the job, but they wanted me to do it, and I was willing to give it a try. As I thought about what kind of legacy I wanted to have, I really recognized that I loved the people that I worked with, um, was very proud of our product, but was very, very frustrated with the system. The system would not allow us to improve unless we harmed a patient. And I was like really struggling with that mentally and, and professionally. Why do we have to wait until we harm a patient to change the system? So I became a student of quality improvement and voraciously read and went to conferences and became a convert and an advocate and now you could say a sensei for lean process improvement, which our organization embraced now over 20 years ago. And have I've used that um, philosophy, mindset, and methodology to enhance uh, and improve processes initially within the operating room and now in my uh, medical director full role for the entire organization, um, c coach and encourage physicians throughout the entire organization to use those methods. Well, uh, I, I appreciate you, you joining us on here, and I feel like as an anesthesiologist, you'll help me a little bit with uh, Dr. Mason, our surgeon in the room, keep him in line. I, I assume that's part of your job description as well. For it's the we hardest part of the job. I imagine it's the hardest part of, of this podcast, to be honest. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but before we got started, you were telling us a little bit about your MBA and, and how you really fell in love with data or learn to use data. And as the director of quality improvement or, or the responsible party for quality improvement for your organization, you know, you, you're inundated with tremendous amounts of data. We had our, our monthly quality close this morning and, you know, 22 hospitals with 
multiple pages of, of data points, um, key performance indicators for each one. You know, how how do you, as as the owner of kind of that your quality program, make sense of all your data? Do you have a, a way to organize it? And um, you know, do you think differently about it now versus uh, how you did uh, previously prior to the the MBA? Yeah, I would say the my thought processes regarding um, data were driven initially by the MBA work um, and have really evolved since then dramatically as well. So, you as you stated, we frequently uh, as physician leaders get inundated with all kinds of data. What I struggle with is most of that data is not actionable in yeah. any way, shape, or form. And so we've spent a lot of time and effort to really think about how we can use data and display data and share data in an actionable manner. And in fact, data has become my most valuable tool, my most valuable ally as I work with other physicians to try to get them to look critically at their practice and consider changing some of their practices to enhance the performance of the system. One of the key elements to achieve that is I'm now a complete convert in process control charts. So we try to put everything, every key performance indicator we can into process control charts. So we can then with a quick glance identify is this process stable and in control or is it unstable? And if it's unstable, um, then the focus really needs to be on how can we stabilize it through standardizing practice better. And if it's a stable process, but it's not delivering the target that we want it to, how can we improve that process to achieve our targeted goal? So we really try to utilize process control charts as much as we possibly can we also have evolved as an organization to um, share data on individual providers' performance and share it unblinded so you can see how you compare to your peers. And when we go and work with the team, we don't look at the outliers whose performance is bad. We actually look at the, at the outliers whose performance is better than the group. And we try to understand what are they doing different what is they doing that causes that better outcome? And we try to then encourage the rest of the group to embrace that practice and, and make that the new standard for the group, thereby improving the performance of the entire group. And we found that that willingness to share the data in an unblinded manner is a tremendous motivator for almost every physician. We all are type A individuals that got into medical school and you don't like to be uh, a provider whose performance is not um, up to at least the mean of the group. That's well, you know, and, and you probably, I don't know if you can see our faces, but we were all smiling and nodding, especially when you started talking about process uh, control or process behavior charts. You know, we, that is something we, we had talked about a good bit this, this morning on our quality meeting and, and something that we do, but I still don't know how, how closely um, tied to the day-to-day -day work, it, they're utilized, and hopefully we can continue to grow it. One of the questions I have for you, though, still is, you know, even with those KPIs, like you were saying, not all of it's actionable. So, 
you know, your OD mortality, if you track that on a process behavior chart, or, you know, your rates of uh, PDBT, periop, you know, those, those are all outcomes. How do you break them down or have you found ways to break them down into a process that you can actually measure to see if you're winning or losing? You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, in essence, when we look at an, an outcome measure, and I'll use, for example, our surgical site infection rate, and we have bundles or steps of care that we ask providers to adhere to to try to uh, mitigate the risk for a surgical site infection and um, and deliver the type of uh, outcome that we're um, striving for. And so we would look at the process measures um, in the care delivery bundles and see are those processes in control and stable and achieving the targets that we're trying to achieve. So as a good example, as an anesthesiologist, I'm expected to deliver the prophylactic antibiotic dose um, in a timely manner before surgical incision. So am I doing that? Um, is the system doing that? And that's a really good example of a single process measure that you could display in a control chart and then pivot it to individual provider performance um, to try to then understand how are individuals that are achieving that 100% goal, how are they, what are the processes or the steps or measures that they're using and share those with the individuals that are struggling to achieve that goal. Yeah, I just also want to mention that about the process behavior charts that that our podcast latest podcast episode that came out yesterday, we actually had Mark Graben uh, on on the podcast, and it was really good to talk with him about his new book Measures for Success. But as a surgeon, you know, I, I can say, you know, working in a surgery department wouldn't be so tough or wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the surgeons, and and I do think that there's a lot of a lot of truth to that because we can be we can be a hard a hard group to work with and and I can imagine in my training the pediatric surgeons I mean they were very 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 particular about their patients and and each each pediatric surgeon had a certain way that they wanted to do things and they didn't care how anybody else did it you had to do it their way yep. tell me how you got buy in from the surgeons working in a a, a, a children's hospital. I'm sure it's, that was um, difficult. It, it, and it, it's not past tense. It's still an active, ongoing effort. But I'll, I'll tell you a story of the very first time I was able to convince a surgeon to change their practice. It happened to be one of the members of our otolaryngology group. We had standardized our pediatric anesthesia protocol um, and so it didn't matter who the providers were, and our outcomes were really, really good. But it was also very clear, particularly to the recovery room nurses, that when there were unexpected outcomes, they they could actually link it to the surgeon, and they could tell you, um, oh, this is going to be a good day or this is going to be a bad day. And so it was really highlighting that um, the variation in surgical practice was the contributor to the outcome that we were looking at, which was really maximum pain score in the recovery room and the, the rate of rescue morphine administration in the recovery room for tonsils in particular. And so... I had one particular day I was working in the operating room where we were having a horrible day. 
and um, the the recovery room was jammed up with patients. We were actually having to hold cases in the OR because the patients were coming out so uncomfortable and staying in the recovery room so long, it was filled. And it was really, really unusual. So I went to the team, my anesthesia team, and saying, what's going on? What is different? And they said, well, Surgeon X actually has a very different practice for his topical anesthesia. He he literally puts in a, a lidocaine-soaked pledget to provide local relief, and his colleagues don't. And so about halfway through the day, I told the surgeon, because he and I have a good working relationship, and says, hey, could you just humor me? We're, we're backlogged here because your patients are waking up very uncomfortable. For your next three or four tonsils, could you please just inject local? And he said, but the data doesn't support that. And I'm saying, just humor me. Try it for four cases. And so he did. And um, I got the result I was hoping for. The patients woke up just like every other uh, case, very rapidly, very comfortably. And unbeknownst to me, the charge nurse recovery room actually spontaneously went up to him and says, what did you do differently with your last four? They were so much better. So at the end of the day, I asked him, how did it go, and what did you notice? And he spontaneously shared um, that the last four were better. But I also could tell he was not convinced. So I went home that night. I pulled out his data on his recovery room outcomes compared to his peers and showed that he was three standard deviations higher than all of his peers for pain scores in the recovery room and rescue rate and rescue morphine in the recovery room. Shared that with him the next day and knowing that he was a believer in quality improvement and data, he came back and says, you know, you're right, I need to continue that experiment. And so he continued that practice and two months later, his outcomes were right on the means to all of his peers. So it was the first time I was able to successfully convince a surgeon to change their practice. And I've used this same model time and time again. I show their performance compared to their peers and motivate them to just try and work with them to uh, monitor their performance with the tools that we have in place. That's a, that's a great story. Wow. Yeah. That is a great story, you know, and, and listeners of the podcast early on will know that I tried to get AHF to change the sutures he was using. And the only way I could get him to change the sutures he was using was when he took a different job as a CMO and so stopped doing <laughs> surgery. That's, that's right. <laughs> uh, you mentioned you, you mentioned that you had a you had a good working relationship with this surgeon and I think that's really key. Talk to us about uh, about how how you develop those relationships with with your colleagues, so that when you do have to have those difficult difficult conversations, or when you do have to talk to them about a bad outcome, or or about somebody who's who's three standard deviations away from the rest of the group. Tell me about how you develop those relationships. Well, one of the key learnings that I've had is that I like to um, focus on the positive 
and, um, so to speak, put money in the bank. And so when I see an individual who's performing really well, I always make it a point of calling it out and congratulating them, not only to their face, but I try to do it in public as well. And a really good example is a follow-up to that story at that two-month follow-up. When I showed him his data, I said, I would love to share this with your division chief and the entire division. And he came back to me and he said, no. And I'm going, why? He says, because I want to share the story with my division. So I always, always look for each and every opportunity to catch people doing the right thing, following the standard and thanking them for doing it. So when I have that rarer instance where we've had a bad outcome or something unanticipated, I've got a lot of credit in the bank with them already. And so they're typically much more willing to listen to me and not reflexly become very, very defensive at the get-go. So that's a, a general leadership philosophy that I've really tried to espouse for the last 10 years. Kind of along the same lines, you mentioned earlier, you know, the importance of sharing the data with the physician, you know, especially as compared to how they do with their peers. Um, how do you do that? Uh, we have, you know, in the past um, had data available where they could compare themselves to their peers, but they don't usually uh, go look for it. Um, but we also don't share it publicly, you know, as, you know, because we're concerned maybe they would you know, be offended. Um, do yeah. you do it on a one-to-one -one basis? Do you do it at department meetings? You know, what's the best practice for, for getting that transparent data out there? It's a process that evolved over time, and I think the group had to develop some comfort uh, with it as well. So when I first started sharing data, it typically was blinded data, and people would then ask, well, where am I? And so then I would show them on a one-on-one. -on -one. But over time, probably after a year or so, I finally got the courage to just say, you know what, I'm just going to unblind it for everyone from the get-go. And, and each and every time, I always made sure my point was on there as well. I was a data element there as well. And more often than not, because I'm less frequent of a clinical provider than many others, my performance was frequently not as good as most of theirs. So I could always make fun of myself as being the poor performer, bringing up the, the end of the field, so to speak. And um, I think that provided a lot of comfort to everybody when I could point to myself and my poor performance, but I also then used that as an opportunity to say, you know what, Adam over here is really doing well. Adam, what are you doing? Because I need to do that. And then I would try to adopt that practice and pull my point up and use that as a live story that people could see week to week um, to uh, see that you can change your practice and improve your performance. But we typically do it in the, the kind of local work unit level, a division level, or for example, in my ambulatory surgery center, we freely share the data for that group that works at the ambulatory surgery center. So more on a department level, you know, meeting level, not at like a, a large, you know, quality meeting, I, I would imagine. Correct, correct. Again, to try to get down to that actionable level. If you look at it at a big, wide system view, it's harder to um, drive that to an actionable level. But when a small working group of like-minded colleagues looks at that data, they frequently can see the opportunities and 
to gain the consensus that, that's necessary to kind of move forward. And do you have any issues with uh, getting consensus on, on who the provider that should be attributed to that case or that outcome is? Um, you know, how, how have you worked through some of those issues that we've seen over time? One of the things that we've developed is a uh, what we call a consensus tool. So when we are having debates about um, what how, how we can standardize a practice or what's the next step for improving our practice, there's usually um, a volunteer in our group, a physician leader who wants to work on that, and they are tasked with um, reviewing our current data and identifying who's the best performer or performers currently and trying to understand what are the subtle nuances that they do a little bit differently. And at the same time, we always ask that individual to do kind of an informal review of the literature to say, is there anything new recently published that should influence our thinking about our practice? And that individual champion then brings their uh, information they've gathered back and puts forth a proposal for what that next experiment would be. And we, then we have a consensus tool that we use to get to a group consensus. Does consensus mean everybody agrees? No but it means everybody will support it. There might be an individual who really says, you know, that wouldn't be my choice, but if that's the group's consensus, I can do it. I don't feel like it's morally, ethically, professionally wrong and unsafe. And that's kind of where we drive it. If an individual reaches that point, um, where they feel that it's that unsafe, then they suddenly become the person who then uh, is responsible for defining the next alternative. And they need to justify it with data. It's really interesting that you talk about um, getting a consensus instead of a vote. And and we were, we asked, um, We've been, I know, I know before the podcast started, before we started recording, we talked, you got, you and Skipper talked a little bit about humble inquiry and, and, and Dr. Shine and, and we asked him that, that, that very question, you know, how do you, how do you use humble inquiry in a meeting? And that was one of the things he said, you have to get a consensus. I mean, you have to get everybody, everybody might not agree. With, or do it the way that that you're suggesting, but but nobody's actually going to sabotage it. I think that's very yeah. important. Yeah, I think it's really really critical, and you actually utilize humble inquiry throughout the entire consensus gathering process. So you as the leader are humbly inquiring of the group and gathering their in input to hopefully come to a group consensus. But the tool, literally the tool we use is a scale that goes from plus three to minus three. And anything plus three to minus one is defined as consensus. But if you're a minus two or a minus three, that breaks the consensus and that individual who's rating it that way then becomes the person who's responsible for um, leading the group to a consensus oh, like with, again, data. Ah, I like that. So, so before you mark a minus three, you better be prepared. You <laughs> better be prepared because they've seen it over and over again that if I feel that strongly, you better have some real ammunition to back it up. Hmm. That's good. That's, that's, a, that's an idea, Jake. I mean, that's a good idea. 
So, you know, we're, we're talking about quality overall, and we mentioned the physician's involvement and getting consensus, consensus with the physician groups and buy-in. You know, what about the rest of the quality team and how important is it to get, you know, just buy-in from overall leadership uh, at your institution on the direction of quality? You know, what sort of support do you have uh, from that group? Yeah. Oftentimes, I've, I feel like in the past, I've seen places where uh, they, you know, maybe the, you know, other side of the house just expected the quality team to drive all quality, but it wasn't necessarily owned by everybody within operations. Yeah. In fact, our our mindset is almost the opposite. The quality is owned by the local team and the local leader. And so they're responsible for the quality of their system and the out, outcomes from their system was what drives the quality um, for the entire medical system. So we really push it down to the frontline team and the frontline leader. Those are the critical individuals and they have to be aligned. Like we made the mistake when we were on this mission of creating an, an uh, opioid-free ambulatory surgery center, which I'm proud to say we've done, um, we didn't successfully uh, appreciate or engage the nurses um, as we started down that pathway. And so they were very nervous and a little resistant and frankly, I think unconsciously we're sabotaging some of our efforts. And once we started to recognize that, we had to go, oops, we're sorry. And we had several meetings with the nursing staff and really talked about why we were pursuing this pathway and the, and the, the interventions that we were contemplating to achieve that goal and reassuring them that we were monitoring our outcomes day to day so no patients were going to be harmed and reassured them. And very quickly, then the nurses got on board and that resistance went away. So it's really, really critical in the operating room, but everywhere throughout the healthcare system, physicians, nurses, technicians, you all have to work together collaboratively to try to drive the system to the level of performance that we all strive towards. And um, the system quality leaders are really responsible for giving you the tools and the resources to help achieve that, but it really is incumbent upon the frontline leaders themselves to drive that. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, but but for our for our listeners who are out there working in the trenches who are very interested in quality improvement, but but may not have time to 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 drop what they're doing and go to school and maybe get an advanced degree what you, you said when you when you first started you you did a lot of reading give us some of the resources that that you would recommend to our leaders who who were interested in in, in going deeper well i most of what i read was 20 years old now because i dove deep particularly into all the books related to lean and then all the Harvard Business Review articles related to lean. And I was, I was a, a, a student of lean. But in all honesty, the reading was, was only stimulated interest. It really didn't stimulate knowledge. And it wasn't mm -hmm. until I actually paired up with someone who had real experience, my sensei, who really taught me 
not by reading, but by doing. That's what's really, really critical. And so you need to find that local leader who has passion and experience who can help coach you and encourage you um, to um, take those little moments of time that you have to try that little experiment and reflect on the outcomes from that experiment, learn from that, and design that next little experiment. It ideally is beneficial to try to do that in a, in a small supportive group. So we we work with what we call dyads. So each local leader, there's basically a nursing leader and a physician leader who in theory should be learning and experimenting together. And that dyad typically has a coach. It might be a physician coach or it might be a, a, a an administrative coach, but they have a coach that is there to kind of support them and encourage them until they've acquired the knowledge and experience and, frankly, the confidence that they can start to do that work independently. And that's exactly how I learned. I had my local coach who spent a lot of time, three or four years, really getting it through my thick skull before I finally figured it out and it clicked. And then I've, you know, over the last 10 years, are really trying to been sharing my passion and, and experience with others within our organization so to pass it on to that next generation who hopefully will continue those efforts. So it's really critical to find that local leader who has that knowledge and experience who could help you through those school of hard knocks. But it's it's through actual application that you're going to really learn it. Well, Dr. Martin, this has been awesome. I could talk to you for hours. I probably wouldn't get much many words in because of uh, Dr. Lancaster and Dr. Mason, but I could talk to you if, if allowed for a long time. I do want to ask one final question more out of curiosity. I know that you did an MBA at the University of Tennessee and and you were a real student of improvement, a uh, mentor of mine that's from there and that uh, has written much on the subject of process behavior charts is Dr. Don Wheeler. Did you ever have much exposure to his material? Oh, yes, he was 1 of uh, the, I'd say. The key instructors uh, for the executive MBA class, so we interacted with him uh, frequently. I learned a lot from him. Well, Dr. Martin, we are so incredibly thankful for your leadership, for your passion. Uh, and we were so fortunate to spend time with you and get to learn from you and just thank you so much for coming on connecting the dots podcast. My pleasure. I'm always happy to share my enthusiasm and commitment to improving the lives of patients and families uh, throughout the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Lynn. Thank you.